We have the privilege of uh, having uh, Mike Snavely be our speaker this morning. If you are here for the first time in the last month, uh, we've had a campaign of reaching the next generation with the gospel, meeting people exactly where they are, and bringing them the good news of Jesus Christ. Joe asked me, he gave me a choice between two songs to sing this morning. I chose this one, and uh, it was a good one. I don't know if you know this, but I'm an old, I come from a farm, and um, you do not want a field white on the harvest. You want a golden harvest. A white field is one that's past due. It's starting to bleach out. Folks, we have a harvest in front of us that's white on the harvest. It is past due. We have a job to do. We're hoping to equip you, encourage you, and challenge you to reach out in every aspect of life. Mike is going to deal very specifically with one direction, uh, but it can be any direction that you can look at it and use biblical principle to begin a gospel conversation and give the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mike's privilege this morning. I know Mike for a long time. I'm on his board of Mission Imperative, and uh, it's been my privilege to serve there. And uh, we are inviting Mike to the stage right now. And the young people, all of those who are getting nervous, yes, I am am, uh, dismissing them right now. Kindergarten through third grade are dismissed for junior church. Good morning, Garden Chapel. <clears throat> so far, my, my bronchitis that's been having me down this week is, I, is kind of holding back this morning. So that's cool. I'm glad. Um, safari of a different type this morning. But I do want to tell you that I have just finished, after months of working on it, a brand new seminar called The Serpent. Yes, that's what it's about. So... Anyway, it has very neat connotations because of the serpent found in the scripture. The serpent that has already bitten all of us. The serpent that has already bitten all of humanity. And there is only one serpent to look at on a pole. It's just just a cool message about salvation. So today we want to look, kind of go in a different direction. We want to do a program called God's Way and Man's Way. Um, again, this was designed to be uh, at a church specifically that was having some trouble with their students, whether it's high school or college, going off and, 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 uh, and respecting their teachers, of course. And then, um, but hearing all about evolution model and hearing all about that particular view, then coming back to their homes and their churches where they were hearing a biblical viewpoint, and they were getting... A lot, of, a lot of them were getting pulled both directions. And so they wanted to know if there's something that I can provide for them, something we can teach them that will help them understand why the evolution model is unreasonable and why the Bible is reasonable. So that's, this is going to be a quick snapshot at that. And I've removed a lot of the slides actually from this program just to shorten it up somewhat uh, for today, but at least you'll get the, the general idea. So God's way or man's way has always been the issue at hand. In fact, when you think about Adam and Eve specifically, they knew God's way. God specifically told them what they may do and one thing that they may not do. Guess what? Right at the beginning, they chose their own way. 
And that has affected not just themselves, but all humanity since then. Decisions you make can affect more than just you. It can affect a whole lot of other people as well. So Adam and Eve chose very wisely and kind of went their own way. So did Abraham. Abraham was told, I will bless you with a son through your wife. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. That faith is what Paul bases his message on all throughout the New Testament. That faith was credited to him as righteousness. But even his faith began to wear out because, you know, God promised him this and he thought it would happen sooner than it was maybe happening. And so in a weak moment, um, he gave in to his wife's nagging about it and uh, produced a child through his wife's maid. And that gave birth to a whole lot of problems still evident for us in the Middle East today. So again, God gives us his way and his blessing. But if we choose our own way, it is often to a horrible conclusion. Moses, the decision, one decision he made didn't necessarily affect the nation, but it affected him. Now think of everything Moses had been through, all of the hardships his whole life, to lead them right to that point, and one mistake, one thing where he went against what God told him to do, and it cost him the right to actually enter into the promised land. Doesn't end there. Look at the judges. I mean, if you read through your, the book of Judges, and you probably have, what is the statement that characterizes the book of Judges? Everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. What kind of a life did that get them? A kind of a life that they wanted? No, it got them everything they didn't want. It got them slavery, it got them poverty, it got them fear, it got them starvation, kicked them out of their homes, all because they refused to follow God's way. And then you know the cycle of the judges. Every now and then a judge would be raised up. There would be sort of a revival in the land, you might say. And then uh, the people, you know, would throw off the shackles of the slavery and everything would be fine for a while. That judge would die. They'd go right back to following their own way rather than following what God said to do. It happened over and over again. Samson is another one. Here he was one of those judges and he could never get a handle on doing things God's way. And he constantly messed up his life to the point we had to commit suicide at the end. And think about the Israelites all throughout this book. They constantly, they constantly knew better. Even to the point of the chief priests at the time that Jesus was walking the earth and having his ministry and the time of his death. If anybody, if anybody should have known that he was the one he claimed to be, it should have been them. They were the experts in the law. They were the ones who read the law and the prophets every week. They lived it. It was their job. They should have easily seen that all the signs were pointing to one person. And in fact, even in his day, in his day, they should have said, they should have seen the prophecy that talked about from the day that the order is given to rebuild the the temple, there will be X number of years before Messiah will be cut off. They knew when that happened. They could add the years for themselves, yet they chose their own way. Amazingly. Well, the devil has always, always made sure 
that there is an alternative right in front of you. And he tries to do it right away. Remember the parable of the sower? What, was, what were the birds that came and ate the seeds? That's the devil, the, the, Jesus said. That's the devil coming and immediately trying to pluck it up. Get rid of those seeds. You don't want them to germinate. The devil came to Eve right away and said, did God really say? And then deceived her. And of course, there went everything. The devil comes right away and it was make sure that there is something to pull you back away from the truth. He will always make sure. In our society, there are many things. Our ministry is based on this guy, <laughs> on what this guy has taught us. Because this, this book has some amazing claims to it. But most people who are critical of this book are critical of the first 12 chapters of Genesis the most. Oh yeah, they might be critical of the cross and salvation and, and all of that. But where, they, where your professors at the secular universities, they won't waste time trying to discredit your beliefs all, through many different things in the scripture. Where they will invest time is at creation, the global flood, and original sin. That's where they will try to invest their time because they know that that is the core of all the issues right there. Original creation. So along comes the devil and tries to deceive people, and he has. Now, Darwin's idea is, we want to look at this briefly. Darwin's idea, I've, I've put kind of in a building, and I call the roof of the building evolution, which his idea is the simple became complex. Darwin did not get into the whole issue of where did the original living thing come from and how, you know, what, what, where did the earth come from. He didn't get into all that. Those difficult questions he was going to let for somebody else. He just said, look, the simple became complex. Origin of species. Why do we have the variety that we have from just one simple little cell that somehow, somehow developed on the planet? So the simple became complex. Through these means, here's the basic ideas. Creatures, as time went on, were able to adapt to various environments because their cells were mutating and by the way, if you're here during Sunday school, mutations are not a good thing at all, period. They are never a good thing. They are never an information-adding thing. But somehow they claim that somehow there were some, and somehow over vast amounts of time, natural selection was weeding the things out that the creature couldn't use, allowing only the good mutations. This all sounds wonderful in theory. That's where it ends. It is all pure theory. But it is based on random luck, random chance, not being guided by anything, and even a deeper foundation is time. Now, let me tell you something. Time is the key ingredient in the recipe of evolution. Time is the backbone. Without billions of years, you cannot have evolution, even by their own admission. You can't have it. Now, the Bible needs no such time. In fact, as you read through... Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth, you don't get billions of years anyway, any way, shape, or form. In fact, one of the best definitions of creation is found in Psalm 33. You spoke and it stood firm. Notice he did not say, you spoke and it eventually came to be. <laughs> That's not what he says. He says, you spoke and it stood firm. So what we have here is a, an idea that says, no, 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 no. It took billions of years of random, random luck to produce us. So let's have a look 
at some of that foundation. This is not something I normally cover in our program called the Pillars of Evolution, but we want to look at a few things. I've mixed probably about two-thirds of my slides over this one. There are hundreds and hundreds of physical clocks that you can gauge, that you can look at, and most of them are geological in nature, but there are hundreds of physical clocks you can look at to see that the Earth is nowhere near the billions of years the evolution has claimed. Let's just look at a handful of them. How about short-period comets? What does that mean? A short-period comet is a comet that goes around the sun every 100 years or less. Halley's comes around every 70 years. It's a short-period comet. So every time a comet comes around the sun, it develops a tail. The tail does not follow the comet. The tail always aims away from the sun. Why? Because every time the comet comes around and develops that tail, it aims away from the sun. The sun is blasting the comet apart. So every time the comet comes around, it's smaller and smaller and smaller. Every time it's getting smaller and smaller. What does common sense eventually tell it tells you eventually is going to happen to the comet? It's going to disappear. Now the evolutionists know that, so they've come up with these wacko ideas to try to, you know, fix that problem. There is no fixing of it. They say that the comets originated billions of years ago at the origin of the solar system. If that's the case, and comets can't possibly last longer than 10 to 15,000 years, you and I should never even know what a comet is, because they should have disappeared billions of years ago. The fact that comets are still in our solar system is an indication that something is wrong with their theory. It is much younger than what we're being told that it is. How about this one? And a lot of people do not even know anything about these clocks. Here's one, though. The moon is absolutely vital to life on this planet. We could do a whole session just on the moon. How amazing the moon is. But the moon cannot be closer to the earth than a certain given point. If the moon is closer to the earth than that, then something called the Roche effect would kick in and the earth would destroy the moon. Because they both have gravitational pull, so they'll be pulling toward each other. The larger one will destroy the smaller one. It'll begin to stretch it out like a football, and the moon will get destroyed. It's going to be gone. So starting at a realistic distance, the moon has been receding two inches per year. Now, the weird thing about that is at that rate, and starting at a realistic distance, so that the Roche effect wouldn't destroy the moon, and given the amount of time we're told that it is... The moon should be out of sight by now, and life would be impossible on the planet. The fact that it is still relatively close to us indicates that it is actually much younger than we've been taught that it is. That's an amazing uh, issue. Well, here's something else about the moon. This one you might have heard before. When the lunar lander, and I don't know if a lot of you will remember that night, we were in South Africa listening to it in 1969 when the the lander, the original one, landed on the moon. Do you remember the feet? The feet were huge, big pods. Why? Because it had to be designed a little bit like a lily trotter. Because they thought if the moon was billions of years old, there was going to be like 150 feet of debris, of of, of space dust on the moon. And they thought it would sink way in. Well, when they actually got there, they only found between one and three inches, indicating the moon is nowhere near as old as the evolutionists had been telling us that it is. And again, let's come down to this planet. Rocks deteriorate over time. Certain rocks, as they deteriorate, give off helium and leave lead behind. But helium, as it goes into our atmosphere, cannot escape 
the Earth's atmosphere. And if this has been going on for billions of years, you and I should all be talking like this. Have you ever taken a helium balloon and, and sucked in the helium? Your voice sounds like this when you talk, right? Have you ever done that? This is what we all should be sounding like, guys. If the Earth is billions of years old, because helium cannot escape the atmosphere. This should be a helium-saturated atmosphere. <clears throat> Get my voice back here. Now, anyway. <laughs> this is a big one. This is so huge that the evolutionists occasionally even use this to try to raise funds for themselves. Like the National Academy of Sciences, they occasionally use this issue to try to raise funds because they know it's impossible. What is impossible? These halos around granite atoms are impossible because when the granite forms, that halo is only there a nanosecond and then it's gone. It is only there in a micro point of a second. The fact that there are halos all through granites indicates that they are much younger than the evolutionists say. In fact, it indicates that they were formed instantly. God said, let there be, poof, there was. At that moment, the moment the rock was created, it caught those halos before they could disappear a nanosecond later. The evolutionists say, no, no, it took millions of, of years for the granites to form. Uh-uh. If that's the case, there can be no halos. And they know it. So they're like, well, there's got to be some sort of an answer to this. There is no answer. But that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to use, you try to get money raised so they can try to overcome things like this. Those are just some of the clocks. Here's some to gauge the age of the earth since the flood. Because so many people say, oh, come on, that global flood, that was, that was not a global flood. It didn't even happen. You know, yes, it did, roughly four to 5,000 years ago. So let's look at just a few evidences of that. How about this? The Mississippi Delta has been building up over a period of years as the Mississippi River carries silt down its track and deposits it, building up the delta out into the Gulf. They know the amount of silt that is on average carried down from the continent. They know how much is deposited there. So they therefore know the original shelf or the original edge of the continent when the delta began to form. Working the current rate of deposit backwards, they discovered, what do you know, that the delta began to form about four to 5,000 years ago. What ended four to 5,000 years ago? The global flood. Let's have a look at this also on our continent. Niagara Falls, many of you have been there. The amount of water going over the falls now is only about half of what it used to be because now there's a hydroelectric dam that diverts about 50% of the water. However, they still know the rate of decay or the rate of erosion, let's say. All these rocks you see at the bottom, they're constantly falling off and wearing away. There's a lot of water pouring over that. Moving water is highly erosive. They know the rate of erosion. They can see the original rock wall where the falls began. Working it backward, they, th they found out, hmm, the, the Niagara Falls began, oh, about four to 5,000 years ago. No surprise to those of us who trust God's word. How about these trees? You can actually see some of them in our Southwest Safari when we go to Bryce Canyon. In the southern end of the park, they're actually everywhere. But these are the oldest known living organisms on the planet. They are all between four and 5,000 years old, some of the oldest of these guys. So you have a whole lot of issues right there. Now, how about in the earth? When you drill for water, you have to pump it out. 
But when you drill for oil, when you hit the oil, it, you don't have to pump it out. It gushes out. Why? Because it's under pressure. Now, geologists know that all of the rocks down here are porous. They also know the amount of pressure the oil is under. They also know that under that kind of pressure, given the type, time of, of age the evolutionists say the earth is, they, they say, no, that pressure would have squeezed that oil out in the adjacent rocks long ago. In fact, the presence of pressure in the oil, many geologists believe, prove that the oil cannot have been there longer than 10 to 20,000 years, which would fit pretty perfectly in with the global flood scenario. That's just pressure of oil. Here's something amazing, because the evolutionists are always telling us that things take billions of years. If you go into a cave and have a guide, they'll say, oh, look at the stalagmites and stalactites. Oh, they build up over tens of... Tens of thousands of years. This is very, very old, this cave. No, a stalagmite and a stalactite can build up three inches a year or more. They can build up rather rapidly depending on what kind of rock is being eroded. So they will also tell us the same thing about ice. So during World War II, 1942, there was a, a flight of P-38s, Lockheed P-38s, which you're looking at right here, a lightning, the Germans called these the fork-tailed devils for good reason. <laughs> these were fighters. They were escorting two B-17 bombers, you know, kind of hopping over the islands over to England to join the war against Hitler. Well, they left Greenland, left their base in Greenland, heading for Reykjavik, Iceland, had to turn back because of nasty weather, hit another nasty weather coming back. They couldn't make it to their base, so they all had to land on the ice. All the gear was up just so they wouldn't flip. The first plane flipped, and that guy said, come down with your gear up. So they did. Kept the gear up. They all landed on the ice. There they were rescued over the next couple days. There the plane sat. So now after the war, these things became very valuable. So a couple decades after the war, the, more, the, the fewer those World War II era planes, the more valuable they became. So guys who were experts in reclaiming them said, hey, look at this account. There's two B-17s and a flight of like six of these uh, P-38s just sitting up there on the ice. Let's just go down, melt the ice off, sweep the snow off the wings, change the propeller, put new fuel in and fly them out. You got great new planes. Well, it wasn't quite so easy. They pinpointed where the guys had been rescued from and found that the ice had moved three miles during that five decades because it's a glacier. And it had been building up from 1942 to 1992. Did you hear that? The glacier was building for 50 years. Building, not receding. Global warming aficionados love to point to certain glaciers that are receding and say, see there, global warming. Anyway, different topic. So, so they landed the planes there. They, 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 they went to go and figure out where they were. Well, they found them three miles away. They could see with their equipment, they could see that the planes were right below them. They said, okay, let's dig them out. Well, they originally started hand digging. Long story short, it took multiple expeditions. They had to make a special thing called a gopher with, 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 uh, with a lot of heat that would sink down and made like a six-foot-wide uh, hole in the ice, four to six feet wide, and they would pump out the water. Well, they didn't go down 20 feet in solid ice. They didn't go down 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet. They went down 268 feet of solid ice before they finally hit the first P-38. It took so long and so much money to get it out that that's the only one they ever got out. It's called Glacier Lady. It took 10 years to have her completely out of there and, and rebuilt, but she flies today. 
The evolutionists tell us it takes tens of thousands of years for that much ice to build up. Wrong. It took only five decades. And that just was just two decades ago that this all actually happened, that actually had this plane flying. So when you look at this, the whole idea is based on lots and lots of time, billions of years of time. If you look at all the physical clocks, let alone what the scripture has to say, it doesn't work. In fact, one of the leading geneticists of the world says time is actually the biggest enemy for molecular evolution that there is. Time will absolutely destroy a living organism if you give it millions of years. Time is their biggest enemy. But here's another one, random chance. All of this by random chance. Folks, let me just zero right in on the topic and show you this. You are made up of cells. You have in your body something like 100 trillion cells in your body. A hundred trillion cells. And scientists have now figured out that every cell of your body is just as complex as an entire city. Now think about that. A hundred trillion Harrisburgs in your body that make up your body or Philadelphia. You're that complex. Now think, doesn't take much thinking to come through with this. When you look at a city, are you just seeing piles of bricks, piles of glass, piles of wire, piles of pipe, and so forth? No, you're seeing all those things put together in a meaningful, purposeful way. Even if you were seeing only the piles of building materials, you'd still have to ask an amazing question. Who or what gathered the right building materials? Why isn't it just piles of cotton that we see? It's not. You don't just see the right building materials. You see them perfectly fitting together to make meaningful structures. This is what scientists see when they look into your cells. A hundred trillion of them, just as complex as that. Now, the evolutionists must answer two serious questions. The first one is, how did that kind of complexity come about by, by random chance? They've spent the last 160 years studying Darwinism to try to come up with that answer. They have failed miserably. Oh, they love to congratulate themselves that they've somehow succeeded. They haven't. And they know it, too. The honest ones know it. They haven't even started to. They cannot come up with any mechanisms that can produce that kind of complexity. But that's only the first problem, folks. Here is a more serious problem. The second question is, what is life? Because you can have complexity. This computer is complex. That projector is complex. But they're not alive. What is life? Do you know that scientists do not know? Scientists do not know what life is. I watched, I've watched people die in Africa on our mission station. I've seen what happens when they die from diseases or, or, or snake bites or spears run through them or whatever. I've watched people die. One moment they're alive and can talk. The next moment they are not. What happened? Why not? Why now? Why not 10 years from now? Why not 20 years from now? What happens? Nobody knows what life is. Oh, we try. The, di the dictionary definitions will try. You know, life is a certain quality, or it's a force, or it's a state. That only describes something that, something that is alive can do. But it has no has no bearing on what it actually is. What is that state? What is that force? What is life? Scientists do not know. There is one place, one place that tells us. 
And that is the Bible. Because the Bible says, and there are many more verses that say similar things. I'll just show you four. In him, who? Jesus. In him was life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am life. Jesus is life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. For in him, Jesus, we live and move and have our being. So here you have, right from the Bible, the essence of life is Jesus. When he created, when he said, let there be, and he formed man out of the earth and so forth, when he created things, he gave the essence of himself into that. He breathed into man life. He is life. Without Jesus Christ, there is no life. Scientists don't know, even know what it is, let alone where it came from. Two major questions they have to answer. The first one, they've failed miserably. The second one, there is no answer. They can't answer that one at all. So when you think about this, think about how, how life is supposedly made from a code. Your DNA code in the center of every one of your cells is the most complex arrangement of material in the universe. It's the most complex molecule in the universe. So now, let's simplify it by looking at another type of code that you and I can relate to. This is the alphabet. You take letters from the alphabet and you can make words. So you can take certain letters from here and put them together. And if you put put them together in a certain way you can get a a little furry animal, okay? If you put them together in any other way, it won't communicate that. By the way, if you take C-A-T over to China, will they understand what you're talking about? No, because they use a different alphabet, which brings up another question. Who or what reads your DNA code to build you from that blueprint? This is the stuff that's the miracle of life, and God says, I did it. Man's way says, no, you didn't. It just happened by chance. I hope you're getting the idea of how ridiculous that is. Utterly ridiculous. So now the word cat does not say anything. You have to put some modifiers to say something about the cat. So let's put a couple other words. How about these words? Put, them in a, put these four words in a sentence. Can I communicate anything to you? No, which tells me something else. It can't be, can't be just legitimate words that makes up your code. It has to be the, co- the words arranged in a meaningful way to build you. The words have to say, the cat is crossing the road. Ah, that makes more sense than cat computer floor table. The cat is crossing the road. Now, now I have something to relate to because the words make sense next to each other. Here comes a Mack truck. Oops, poor cat. And now you have the complete story. So, so even if you took... All these, if you took a million monkeys and a million computers for a million years, you know you're not going to get monkeys typing accidentally one page of legitimate words. Are these all legitimate words? Are they all legitimate words? Okay, and I've used proper punctuation. I've used capitalization. I've even put them in paragraphs. But am I communicating anything to you? I'm not communicating anything. You don't get meaning out of randomness. You don't get 1,000 volumes, 500 pages long, like a, like a Britannica dictionary that makes up your DNA code by randomness. It is not going to happen. Now, the evolutionists know that now. Many of them admit it, like this guy. Look at, look at who he was. 
chief paleontologist at a very prestigious place. Look what Colin Patterson admitted. One of the reasons I started taking this anti-evolutionary view was last year I had a sudden realization that for over 20 years I thought I was working on evolution in some way. One morning I woke up and something had happened in the night. And it struck me that I had been working on this stuff for 20 years and there was not one thing I knew about it. So he developed a question. Question is, can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing, any one thing that's true. I tried that question on the geology staff at the Field Museum of Natural History. The only answer I got there was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists, and all I got there was silence for a long time, and eventually one person said, it ought not to be taught in high school. That's the evolutionist speaking. They know it now. But many of them can't possibly admit it. Now, many of them are admitting it in bigger and bigger numbers. After 160 years of being taught this stuff, it is literally fraying at the seams, and I'm glad to see that. However, many of them will stop. They'll say, okay, evolution does not work, and it cannot work, but yet here we are in all of our complexity. How do we get here? They'll say, well, we must have been intelligently designed. How many of you have heard that term, intelligent design? We've all heard it, right? So a lot of the public school systems are saying, no, 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 you can't teach that in the schools because that's creationism. No, it's not. It is simply an acknowledgement of the evolutionists that it cannot happen by Darwinism. Therefore, there has to be intelligent designers somehow, some way. The problem to the public school system is that opens the door for the possibility of this being true. And that's what they can't have. But they will insist it's the same thing as biblical creation. No, it isn't. Intelligent design, they'll say, it could be the Metaclurians of Star Wars that created us. could be anything. The Bible is specific. It tells us who the creator is, when he did it, and more or less how he did it. He spoke and it stood firm. So there's man's way of trying to get out of an issue, and then, of course, there's God's way. But here's one more thing I wanted to touch base on. It's kind of a humorous thing. It's the whole idea that you and I evolved from an ape. Let me just show you two mathematical impossibilities just for fun. We're told that we evolved from an ape-like creature over the last two to four million years, correct? We've all been told that. We're, we're, we're all told that. Okay, so let's imagine that there was an, a female and a male ape-like creature two million years ago. Now, we're not told how that incredible difference between male and female how that all happened, we're just told that somehow it happened, okay? So you have a male and female ape-like creature some two million years ago that was going to produce all the modern-day human beings and all the modern-day apes, right? That common ancestor was two million years ago. So let's just say, though, that the population growth was real, real, real slow. It's much faster than this. But let's just say the population only doubles every thousand years. So you start off with two. The population doubles to get to where we are today. Population doubles at the end of a thousand years due to, you name it, famine, infant mortality, whatever. You name it. The population only doubles at the end of a thousand years. You've got four of them. At the end of another thousand years, you've got eight. At the end of another thousand years, you have 16. Are you with me in that? This is just simply population growth doubling every thousand years. It, it grows much quicker than this. Folks, if you just do the math, and maybe you, some of you have already done these kinds of things before, after just 60,000 years, 
you don't even have enough room on this planet to stand up all the apes that would have to be alive even if you drained all the oceans. After 100,000 years, you do not even have enough room if you take all the visible stars and convert them to planets and move all the apes up onto there. The multiplication now is so great that even after only 100,000 years, you'd have trillions, well, you'd have an un, uncountable number of apes just at a double, double every 1,000 years. This is 100,000 years. We're told it was 2 million years. Where are all the ancestors? Where are all the people today? Let's look at it as another way. This is maybe an even more, uh, a more interesting way to look at it. Here's the picture of the earth. There's the equator. Apes are not farmers. I've had apes and monkeys as pets in Africa. They don't farm. They are hunter-gatherers, okay? They eat berries, they eat leaves, they eat bark and whatever they can scrounge up. So they have to live in the equatorial regions of the world. They have to because if they wander too far into the temperate zone, north and south, they're going to start dying off in the, in the wintertime, right? So they have to live where it's warmer. That means, folks, that the area that's, that's colored in dark green, you should be able to go anywhere where you see dark green and dig down and find millions, billions, trillions of bones of our ancestors. They aren't there. They never have been. If you take all of the bones the evolutionists like to use as evidence of this and put them all in one spot, it might fill a box less than the size of a coffin. And every one of those bones is highly suspect at best. There is no evidence. There is no kind of evidence whatsoever from the fossil record or anywhere else, from mathematics, whatever, to show that we came from any kind of an ape-like creature. God's way simply says, no, I made you in my image. Man's way says, no, you came from a monkey. Now, which one is more reasonable? By the way, if you look back at this one, it is much more reasonable, given the known rate of population growth, to figure, if you work it backwards, the current population of the earth now, if you work it backwards according to known population growth rates, you can easily have the, number, the population we have now in just about four to 5,000 years from eight people. Which of the two do you think is more reasonable? Which one is more observable? God's way or man's way? Now think about this. The Israelites, if you read your Old Testament, they always fell. They always would just, they, they, would, they would always keep going back to this false god worship. One of the most common gods that they worshipped, false gods, was Baal. There were other ones, Molech and, and uh, Asherah and all these different other false gods. But Baal is the one that they fell for the most. All throughout the Old Testament. Baal worship, Baal worship, Baal. Does anybody worship Baal today? No, it's gone. It was a man-made thing. Now let's bring it into the New Testament. This story I love. You might have heard this. You might remember this. Paul was in Athens. And no, he wasn't. He was in Ephesus. He was in Athens, but we're talking about Ephesus now. Okay, so he's in Ephesus. That's where Artemis' temple was. So a lot of people begin to turn to Christ. They realize, you know what? This is, this is the truth. Let's turn to Christ. So they turn to Christ. Many of them. Well, then all the silversmiths who made the little idols and the little false gods of Artemis, they began to get offended. They said, well, man, listen. They called a meeting. They said, look, this guy, Paul, he's leading everybody into this Christianity. 
we're losing all of our income and our good name. We need to stop this. So they started a riot. So what happens? Do you remember the story? They bring everybody into this big square and the mayor has to calm them down. The mayor says to them, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that Artemis is a true goddess and her image fell from heaven? Since the fact is undeniable, you should not be rioting like this because we can't give an account of this for the Romans. The Romans did not allow that kind of rioting. He said, take them to the courts. The courts are open and there are lawyers there. Take them there. Did you hear what he said? Since the fact is undeniable. And then he also said, doesn't all the world know that this is true? Folks, aren't those the same statements we are constantly hearing about evolution? Doesn't everybody know that evolution's true? Would you check your brain at the door if you don't believe it? Everybody knows it's true. The fact is undeniable. They're saying the same thing about a man-made religion today. Who believes in Artemis anymore? Nobody. So now this is what's happening with evolution. It's defraying at the scene, at the, at, at the seams because it, people are realizing it doesn't work. So now let's draw this to a conclusion now. Well, how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that the Bible can be trusted? Well, just like those other evidences, I've whittled this down to just a few that we want to share with you today. And some of these can be really powerful if you take them to heart and study them in a little bit more depth. Origins. Origins, evidence is everywhere of design, not of random chance. In, in one of our Ranger Mike videos, and by the way, this week, those of you who are interested, this week, face-to-face with Leviathan will be coming out. So it's already on the website. It's already going to be this, this, this week's Tuesday email. If you get those, um, you'll see that. So that's, that's coming out now. That'll be the sixth one. But anyway, in one of the Ranger Mike videos, I quote two evolutionists who say this. Now, you might get a kick out of this. One guy says... Biology is the study of living things that give the appearance of having been designed. (laughs) Don't you love that? Well, of course they give the appearance of having been designed. What did you conclude by that? They were. The other scientist said, we have to constantly remind ourselves that even though everything looks designed, it wasn't. It evolved. Why do they have to constantly remind themselves Because in every way, in every scientific field, in every object, everywhere, everything looks designed, looks ordered, looks like it was made by someone. And if there is design, that means there is a designer. And so even the evolutionists admit that. So origins, design is evident, random chance is not. History is another major one. In fact, especially from the fields of geology and archaeology. Geology, because, especially because of a global flood, that is amazing how much evidence there is for a global flood. But then specifically archaeology, because the Bible is mainly, mainly covers the Middle East and over into parts of Europe and South, Southwest Asia and so forth. Archaeology has confirmed every single fact that it can by now. In other words, every artifact that has ever been found None of it ever disproves the Bible. Every one of them, every one of the artifacts found has always showed that the Bible is trustworthy. So you have two major fields of science supporting it as well. How about this? Miracles that were done in the past to prove to a group of people 
that God is at work. Think of creation to begin with. And that is the testimony right there. And we still see it, Romans 1.20. The evidence of design everywhere. God did some miraculous things at the beginning. But then he allowed his prophets to do some miraculous things to communicate to the people that God meant business through that prophet. Then when Jesus himself came to the earth, think of the miracles he did fulfilling prophecy, but the miracles he did thwarted all the known laws of physics. Walking on water, turning water to wine, getting a cripple to walk. All these impossible things that prove that something special is going on. Today, you can have converts to this belief system or that belief system, but I don't know of too many people who give wonderful testimonies. When they turn to Christ, there are amazing testimonies that people have of, their, of, of the new life, of the Holy Spirit living in them. You have converts to other belief systems, but that's just, there's nothing exciting going on. There's no miraculous salvation going on. Here's something else. The fields of science. Virtually all the fields of science that we use today were founded by a Bible-believing Christian creationist. I would have loved to see that debate that took place a couple of years ago between Ken Ham and Bill Nye. I would have loved to have seen Ken say to the guy, listing all of the sciences, because remember, that was the premise of the debate. You know, creation has no place in science. I would have loved for him to hit all of the major uh, scientific disciplines and show who founded them and the faith of that person who founded that discipline. And that I would have loved to have said to Bill Nye, Bill, you would not even have a job if it wasn't for a creationist. I would have loved to see that. But science has verified it as well. How about this one? Consistency. The Bible is the only book that has so many authors spanning thousands of years between them with a consistent theme with no irregularities or in other words, nothing that would be inconsistent with the major theme. Right from creation the whole way to the culmination of time. This book is 100% consistent, even though it had 66 different authors, six, or 66 books, I should say, and many different authors. And lastly, prophecy. All of the prophecies that can be fulfilled, that are found in that word, that can be fulfilled by now, have been. In fact, look at the number of prophecies on Jesus Christ alone. There were over 350 prophecies about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah, And many of the prophets who prophesied, I'm just going to list several of them here. Many of these prophets did not, most of them didn't even know each other. They lived in different times. And they were not building on each other's message. One wasn't saying, oh, he said this about the Messiah, I'll say the same thing. No, they all had different messages about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And every one of those prophecies came true in Jesus Christ. Do you know that scientists have worked out the likelihood of over 350 specific prophecies coming true in one individual? One individual, They've worked it out mathematically to this. Picture taking a quarter and painting it red on both sides. Now take all of the state of Texas, cover the state of Texas in two feet of quarters. Trillions upon trillions. The whole state of Texas under two feet of quarters. Have somebody hide your red quarter. Now you walk in to Texas, all over the city. You walk in, blindfolded, reach down, dig in, pull out that red quarter. What's the likelihood? It's not there. 
It's the same thing here. How many prophecies took place in Jesus Christ alone, proving that he was, in fact, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God? So, what do we make of this? Let me close by saying this. What is it that you believe about anything? You could say this about anything that people talk about today. The subject of global warming came up during the Sunday school, whatever. But right now, I want to look at what do you believe about life and what happens to you when you die? Which is often how many spiritual conversations wind up talking. What happens when you die? What is it that you believe? Because everyone here and everyone in the world, even if they like to call themselves an atheist, everyone here believes something. You all believe something. What is it that you believe? That's the first question. Number two, why do you believe it? What is your source of that information? Is it trustworthy? Or is is it as trustworthy as the internet? (laughs) Is your source trustworthy? Thirdly, how has it helped you with your life or understanding life or whatever? But here's the last one. What does it guarantee you? When you... When you go to the store and buy a car or a washing machine and you look at the warranty and the warranty says, guaranteed for two days, you probably wouldn't buy it. But if something you looked at said, guaranteed for life, all, all parts, guaranteed for life, you might take up, sit and take a look. Wait a minute, that's a pretty good guarantee. So ask yourself a question about what you believe about your life after you die here. What is it that you believe and why do you believe it? And by the way, what does you, what you believe guarantee you? My wife and I have worked with Hindus, uh, not so much Muslims, but I'll tell you what, evolutionists, every belief system that mankind has come up with, whether it is a religion or a man-made doctrine like evolution, man-made religion like evolution, every one of them guarantees nothing. Hinduism says, oh yeah, you'll come back. You've got millions of recycled lives to come back. They guarantee nothing. Ask a Muslim. They go into eternity. They they die in great fear that this terrible God Allah will just completely overlook them. There are no guarantees. But Jesus guarantees you. He said, those who trust in me will never be put to shame. What what does the warranty card say on Christ? On Christianity, what does Jesus' warranty card say? You turn it over, it says, you are free from the penalty of your sin. Boom. Declared not guilty. That's astounding. Not guilty. But he doesn't just let you there. Then he says, oh, by the way, you're not only just not guilty. The warranty also says you will get a permanent place in heaven when you die. What? I don't deserve the first part of the warranty. I certainly don't deserve the second, but it doesn't end there. He says, you will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ, God's Son, the creator of everything. Co-heirs. That is an astounding guarantee. No wonder, Paul says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How can we escape if we, if we overlook that kind of a guarantee? So what is it that you believe today? Tell you what, mankind has always come up with 
an alternative, alternative to what God says. But just like Joshua said, I don't know about you, but I know who my, as far, as far as me and my house are concerned, we will follow the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Heavenly Father, we are, we're amazed at your word and how astounding it really is and how it is a living sword that teaches us. And Lord, we thank you so much for it. Thank you for the fact that we can be in it. We have it for free here. And we can freely look into it, study it, learn from it, grow from it. I pray for each of us, Lord, as this series is winding down about how to share your faith and, and what circumstances and what, how to launch that conversation and so forth. I pray that this will help us in some way to gain more confidence in your word, that it can be trusted. And it's exciting. And to use whatever those opportunities are to jump on them, to be able to share our faith with others in whatever means you've given us to do that. We just commit ourselves to you again as well. For those, if there's somebody here who does not know you as Savior, I pray that they would make that decision today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just a couple of uh, announcements. We want to thank Mike.